Good morning and blessings today. God bless you. You know, Jesus is always beckoning us. He's beckoning us to come forward, to be at peace, to be at rest, no matter what, no matter who says what. And that's pretty hard today in the gossip, in the ministry, and leadership, online, you name it, family. So we're going to talk about relationship theology. And you can look at relationshiptheology.org or .com. We are abiding in James 3.17 relationship theology for ministry, Christians, apostles, people who train others. It's about real respect for everybody, knowing your, the Word of God and the bless me, but also in the relationship, holy fear of the Lord realms. Today I'm going to talk on James 3.15 and 16. We're usually on James 3.17. And I want to preface this by going back that when I researched the book of James, I earthly brother, sire Mary and Joseph, and Jesus sired by Mary and Creator Father God. So we find that in history that this was probably the oldest brother of his many siblings, males and females in his family, and that James himself did not believe in his brother as the Savior, as the Christ, until after he was resurrected, after he died and paid the price for our sins. So it's very notable that now James would have a book and that he would be the one of the overseer pastors and on the boards of the Church of Jerusalem, the first churches. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, which I have, Israel, you know it is a spiritual zone Wonderful and a hotbed and a reality check of the meeting places of the nations and the religions of faith. So when you find the calm text, the thorough details in this very peaceful book, but very meaty book of only five chapters, Book of James, I always like to point out the history that I admire him, that he would be able to remain in such a calm state, so precise and dig, dig so deeply in the middle of who knows what spiritual zone was going on at his in his life behind the scenes in public in the area in the spiritual realm in the churches at that time and when we look at chapter 3 you notice that he talks about membership in the churches he does yeah it says that Verse 5 of chapter 3, Even the tongue is the little member, and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. So I think it's sort of humorous. He wasn't really mentioning church membership, but he was mentioning fellowshipping among the saints in the area. And he said that even the littlest member, the tiniest member of your party, your group, your mouth... Your body can start the worst things, and we can tell that's true. Look online, look on the mayhem and murder, and then on the gossip, and on the telltale Christian sites, and the, you know, spying false apostles here and there in an accusing fashion. There's nothing wrong with perceiving and assessing a false or true person. That's right, that's scriptural. You've got to judge them by their fruit. So we're trying to add some fruit, not on their look, their preaching style, their habits, certain things they say that maybe 
agreement with you or not, we're looking at Ephesians 4, common doctrine for the church, when Lord, when faith, when baptism, when God the Father of us all, all mutually submitted to one another in the fear of the Lord. Ephesians, the whole chapter, which transforms the church first, makes it more mature, less doubting, less immature, less prone to be con artists. Then the church has more favor, the collective community of the many kinds of churches, cross-denominationally in a community, and then it transforms a community, a secular community, because people are saying, hey, you know, there's something different. Every time I meet a Christian, a Christ follower, a born-again Christian, there's something different and unique, and it's wonderful, it's peaceable, it's respecting, it's faithful and faith-filled. I want to know more about Jesus, and that's what we want. That's why I'm talking like this and around all this. Yes, you can have a lot of good, well-intentioned hierarchy and pure motives and getting your money in and teaching tithe and I want to and bless me and success and things as usual. But then we have to think, what is the price behind the scenes with the family, the ministry, the real life, the nation, the effect of the community on each other in the Christian sense, on the secular Christian sense, and what's really going in life today when you see online every single day almost the falling away, which a lot of people, I know because I've been around so long, it's been foretold all these years. Some people are just, in my opinion, they're accepting it. We're just accepting it. Oh, yeah, that was bound to happen. It's poor, poor us, poor we Christians. Oh, yeah, they just don't want Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They're all going to, you know, they're just not going to be saintly like us. So we're going to have to be persecuted. Let's resign ourselves now. I mean, that is everywhere, everywhere, everywhere online. I would like to say, and I've thought it since the 80s, when I noticed the doctrines were different, not like my daddy's doctrine. You know, I mean, he wasn't Billy Graham, but back in this, like, love Jesus, serve Jesus, accept Jesus, go to heaven and get prayer and fellowship. And it's like family. Well, then you get out all the different kinds of movements, which the Lord sent me at starting age officially and when I was 24 which is about 76 right before all the big <laughs> all these big moves started I was a Christian a devout you know turned on to the Lord Jesus person type just married no children and one day the Lord said to me in a Presbyterian part charismatic part Presbyterian church very honorable he sort of quickened my heart and he said I want you to study my body all the different kinds of Christians and leaders their doctrine their pet peeves know what their red flag buzzwords are, their worship, their music, and their style. And I thought, I'll accept. That sounds interesting. Well, I didn't know what it would lead me into, but it did cross the different colors, the different races, and I enjoyed that part very much, different styles. But I didn't realize when I got out there that there was such a thing as pre-TV, maybe, doctrine, pre-shepherding, Christian shepherding, overseer, controlling shepherding, and different things that are more traditions of man, human traditions or passed down law, maybe even coming, I suspect, from the Puritans that came over on the love boat, I mean, on the boats up in New England, the Levitical patriarchism of the day, which they just didn't understand, was pro-men, not women, and was suspicious, accusing of females, Western European Levitical patriarchism, a.k.a. covering shepherding, which is based back under the law. And I've studied deeply. Wasn't raised around it. 
in my whole family, Christian family. But I can detect it now because of what has gone on and what I knew was freedom in Christ before I encountered it in the early 90s, mostly on up. On the East Coast, Deep South, now, you know, a lot of places. Tradition of man. So we look at our doctrinal roots and I think, wonder if this overseer shepherding, which comes up from the Deep South. I remember when I was in college, a magazine called New Wine were wonderfully intelligent articles about Holy Spirit. I honor them for that. I still do. Nothing wrong with that. I saw some. I mean, really, I liked it. But when they sought it, and when I was a junior or senior, I remember that magazine got got into shepherding. Women are less and all this, and legalism, and I just had to quit getting it. So then it buried. I never heard of that or thought of that all my life until it came back in the 90s to where I used to live, eight, late 80s, with the more charismatic kinds of group spirit field. Not all. Not all. And I noticed, that's why I'm saying, I would notice where I picked it up and where, where I would see it and where my character was assassinated and where it wasn't. It wasn't assassinated. And so I knew that when I was with Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, real Pentecostals with buns, black people, Asian people, really, to m- most black people always liked me, got me, that I was always fine. They were fine with me first appearances they weren't shocked or awed you know because I do I must have something on my spirit that triggers this maybe my dad's more blood who knows in the Baptist sense so I would go to other groups and I'd say boy why are these people acting like they've seen a spook well turn out those people are prone to study Jezebels in their midst and I learned out how important it is to have joy a lot of these same people that speak spooky spiritual are not joyful in their congregation that's the fallout of the instead of fruit and i thought there for the grace of god we love and respect these people we don't just want to be around them if you're going to not get spoken to you get jumped in public two or three times through the years you know through 20 years and you see other people you've heard their stories even one man quiet man of seven children father of seven i thought what is this spirit it is a religious Go find them. Don't speak to them and and talk to them like a normal person, like a Baptist or somebody who's respectful of a relationship, but in, in the fear of the Lord. But instead, why are they so eager and so overboard about this governmental authority? Who are you under? Are you submitted? Are you submitted to our kind of authority? So I really got into the doctrine like a noble Berean, and I'm so glad I did. And I'm out of that. But we want to say we honor those the good things that you can find in there. You may find a lot of good power and Holy Spirit discernment, but at what price? And so we would like to just have everyone look in their doctrine and see if they assess themselves. Respect yourself as James Brown used to sing on YouTube. James Brown, respect yourself. Well, I say assess yourself. Don't accuse yourself. Assess. What am I doing and saying and believing and leading in that reminds me of James 17, 317, easily entreated fruit, respecting of all, all doctrines, all beliefs. And what is the opposite? Maybe predatory, accusatory, and not assessing, based on law. So we go to the book of James, and I 
love to say that James, first of all, starts out in chapter one, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, a greeting. Now, see, he is the overseer, brother of the Christ, the bishop, so to speak, over the area of Jerusalem, which is a giant, a giant honor, a giant call. Yet he has his own reality, his own vision of himself as a servant. He's not spoiled, entitled. He's not lording over. And that's the part that when you get into the mixture of doctrines, which I've studied, and you get into the different moves, and you find Roman patricianism mixed in with the overseer whelp, Western European Levitical patriarchism, and you feel, what is this elevated ministry pulpit these days in certain quarters? Why has everybody got to be over me if I walk in as a newbie? They don't know me. They just know they're going to be over that person because she's a, whatever she is, a female earth suit without any respect of who are you and how does God use you? Maybe you're senior ministry. No, you're sent like chattel to be under us. Make sure you pay your tithe. That's the impression I want to say is so big. You don't want that. So when we say, is there a running away or is it a falling away? That's what I'm saying. Are we settling for being persecuted and saying, oh, yeah, it's their fault. Oh, we saintly saints. We're just a prisoner of that verse. You know, it's just the end times and we're all going to be martyred. We're all going to go there. Woe is me. And everyone spreads on the, all these magazines are saying it. All these ones are hangdog. Oh, it's their, you know, they don't say it's their fault, but oh yes, it's the big falling away. I've thought since the 80s when this doctrine of patricianism elevated hierarchy, one of my pet doctrinal peeves, and everyone watching out, instead of saying, are they a believer? Are they, instead it's like, are they in a church? Are they submitted? Are they under, that's white, usually, to say it, not all of them, but I'm saying you don't get that when you're out in the field that are white for harvest from any other color. Maybe there's a bandit group or some kind of group out there in a different color group, Hispanic or black or Asian that does that, but in the field throughout America, grassroots, and I've been to Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Florida many times, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, as sent by the Lord. There are servant leaders, surely you can find them, but let's find doctrine that is not bowing and scraping, you know, personal kingdom making of our, our own group. Let's have it down to earth so that anyone can come from any nation, feel respected. Let it be like an humble, Isaiah 56, verse 7, house of prayer for all people. So Brother James, Bishop James, Pastor James, Apostle James, writes instead that he's a servant leader, and he writes with humility to the whole 12 tribes of Israel, which is a huge thing. He talks about wisdom, having in joy when you encounter all trials. Uh, if you ask in wisdom for God to give you, don't waver, because then you won't get it. Don't be no double-minded, he says. He talks to the very poor. He said, let the brother of low degree rejoice that he is exalted. Wow, have no money. And yet in the Lord, they're highly ranked because of their faith, their joy, despite their trust, their ability to get with God 
and hear from him and depend upon him, not on the natural usual realms. He warns the rich, but rich, we warn you that you were made low because as the flower of the grass passes, so shall you. He says to verse 13 of chapter 1, let no one say that God is tempting me because God doesn't tempt you, paraphrase. Instead, you get tempted when you're drawn away by what's inside your own heart, which is lust, different types of lust. That's for men and women. He says the lust brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. So really it's to save us and protect us, not to shame us. He says, do not err in that, my beloved brethren. And then he says, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. In other words, God is so good, we only get a picture of him, a glimpse of him, and we see a lot of darkness because we're made that way in the earthly sense. We're carnal still. But once we see the whole, we couldn't handle it like Moses. Moses came down from the mountain. He was he had to cover his face, and that's how awesome God is, his glory. And we can skip on over there. We talked about this before. Look into the perfect law of liberty. It says, if any of you says you're religious, but you refuse to bridle your tongue. Here we are, starting on about the, the tongue, the littlest member of the body, the littlest member of the group, perhaps. It says, if you don't bridle your own tongue and you say you're religious, you think you are, then your heart is deceived and your religion, this person's religion, is in vain. Vain means proud, false, haughty. Verse 27, James says, but pure religion, real religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to keep yourself unspotted from the world is a relationship theology points. All right, you visit, you take time and go care and show empathy and compassion and weep with we those who weep and mourn with those who mourn when they're suffering. First, you know, that's your first fruits, I guess, toward the Father and the widows. And you keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's a relationship because you want to please God. You want to worship God with that. We already talked about chapter 2, brethren, says James, don't mingle your faith with the respect of persons. Don't treat one style or one wealthy one differently than you would the poor one, uh, because God is not mocked. Says the, the poor rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, do not despise the poor, do not oppress them. Okay, and we go on there. It says, verse 9, chapter 2, But if you respect a person, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. He's referring back. I see, the Jewish church was right straight in the middle of the Hebrew nation. They'd been all raised culturally and biblically, Torah-wise, all their lives and were immersed in this. So there's a flavor of the Jewish faith in here, which is Jesus. You know, they, Jesus was Hebrew, so he's saying it in a way that is relating to the Jews and their law and legalism tendencies. He says, if you treat relationships with respecter of persons, that kind of person's style, that relationship one way and that way not good, 
and you only have pet kinds you like, pet flavors and folks you like and want to respect, then you are sinning according to the law, the Old Testament law. All right, and if you sin in one part of the law, it says, verse 10, then you are guilty of all. So therefore, even today, if we're mocking somebody, if we're impolite, disrespectful, demeaning, gossiping, accusing behind their back or out in front, jumping at people in public without any relationship, respect for them, then that's as bad as committing adultery. That's as bad as stealing. That's as bad as breaking the Ten Commandments. My opinion, I'm submitting that as a sila. For whoever is guilty of one thing is guilty in all. That's why we cannot have in the Christian community one pet sin that's worse. Oh, yes, they did that. Oh, I heard. Yeah, I saw them. Oh, I heard they did that. Oh, yeah, I saw him with her. Oh, yeah, we heard that, too. That's as bad as stealing paperclips from your company. Or murder. So, therefore, we want to avoid the accusation, which is part of the family talk. We don't want to be judged by the law, by people's tongues, or gossip. The littlest member can go hog wild, and it is, especially the grassroots. We won't skip through all the theology points that he makes because it's so wonderful. We'll go straight over to chapter 3. And when we look at James 3.17, you can see also the fact that partiality, the wisdom that comes from above, is without partiality. That's the same as a respecter of a person's spirit. Chapter 3. My brethren, includes the sister and the mother and the gossips and the nice people. My brethren, be not many of you masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now that verse, translated a different way, says, Many of you do not want to be teachers, knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgment. When I first got called to teach, Christian teaching, that frightened me. I didn't really want to go there. I thought, man, at the end times, I'm going to be held guilty, you know, and I'm imperfect. And I still have a holy fear, you know, try to be really careful. I know I'm not perfect, but I try hard. Well, I was going through horrible testing and trials, just in and out. I mean, you wouldn't believe all the tests and trials that would come into my life. And I would need a miracle to get out. And I have to go to God time and time again, which is still the truth now. But the Lord revealed, he opened up this scripture. He says, don't many of you think to be teachers because you incur the stricter judgment, that means you go through worse stuff many times. You go through more stuff than a normal person because you're learning teaching points, which when you get out, you can help get out as well. That's my law. So you can count it all joy, like James says in chapter 1, but if you feel you've got the call to teach for the Lord, be careful and be knowledgeable and also realize that if you are under the midst of weird circumstances, day in and time out, once you get out of one, a prison cell opens up of a Pauline kind, maybe you've got the call to teach and preach and be in office one day. Think on those things. So James in chapter 3, we're building to teach down to the discernment of what is pure-hearted and not in fellowship relationships and ministry. 
All right, it says, Don't many be teachers. It says, For in many things we offend all. If when, if any man offends not in word, perfect man, and able to bridle the whole body. That goes for women too. All right, so in other words, we're talking about the littlest member. And the littlest member can cause, build everybody up, make them smile, make them praise. Otherwise, it can tear them down, make them feel dejected, rejected, accused, like paupers. No good. All right, so... Authority is huge topic with your tongue. Yet, we're all human. We're all the flesh. And there's the world of flesh and the devil always working. Plus, we could be tired or short-tempered that day. So it says, just be ready. Everybody's going to offend somebody sometime. And there's no perfect person, no perfect man. Because nobody that you've seen, Billy Graham... Nobody, famous or, or well-known or not, has ever been able to completely guard in their tongue, no matter how golden it appears, when they're off the stage, somewhere in business, somewhere online, all of us. So we ask for mercy for them and for me and for you. Peaceful, calm James mentions in verse 3, we can put bits in the horse's mouth and they obey. We can turn their whole body. We can get ships, and even though they're great and driven by fierce winds, we can turn them with a very small rudder uh, at the very small helm when, by the mechanics that are on the ship. Verse 5, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Human ego, vanity. And boasteth great things. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. So even though we can have a tongue, you can't control it like the ship, like the horse, because it's willful. It's got a mind of its own. A complainer, murmurer, got joy. Verse 6, and the tongue, this is the tongue, the tongue has the tendency typically to be a fire. It is a world of iniquity, so the tongue among our members, that means our own personal body members, and our own fellowshipping members, and our own teammate members, and our own family members, even though they're peculiar or not, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and it can set on fire the course of nature, it can, like a wheel, it can sow seeds of goodness and grace. It can be setting on earth hell. It can lead into deceit, accusation, wrong direction, false teaching, misinformation, lying, predatory traps, insincerity, dealings to get their own way and get something from people, mercenary, and so forth. You can study that for yourself. All right, verse 7. For every kind of beast, of birds, serpents, things in the sea is tamed and can be tamed of mankind. But the tongue, no man, no human can tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We each got to work on it all the time. That's why we pray on and we speak on and we talk about and we claim James 3.17 that we represent before God, before our family, before you and me, ourselves, that we represent the wisdom of God even under pressure, that we're not too strict or too weak, 
that the wisdom of God is first of all pure, peaceable, gentle, easily to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Brother James says, The tongue no man can tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. It wants to get its way and say what it really wants to say and do what it wants to do, and it's filled with doubt, naturally. Verse 9, With it we can bless the Lord God our Father, or we can curse men that are made in the image of our Father. (laughs) Verse 10, Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. O brothers, do not these things should not be verse 11 can a fountain send forth at the same time and same place sweet water and bitter water can the fig tree bear olives can a vine figs in other words you can't be double tongued that's what we're talking about don't say one thing or mean one thing and say the other don't spew out venom wrath falseness or whatever chastise when you yourself are the filled with pollution verse 13 of chapter 3 book of James who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you let him show out of good conversation what who's the wise man who's the person with knowledge watch their words let him or her show out of a good conversation their works with meekness meekness, not weakness, not PC, not political correct, not people pleasing, groveling, umbling just to get raised up higher or something. But instead, we are to have true humility like Book of James author, James himself, wisdom, but with humility and meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, but, now we're getting to the, we're almost near the runway. But if we are ready to land but if we are bitter have bitter envying and strife in your hearts glory not and lie not against the truth if you are saying great oracle messages getting paid lots of compliments everybody wants to have you over to speak and invite you plenty yet you know down deep in your heart that you are not true that you are really envious covetous wanting more money or doing it from the wrong motive or have a reason to a proud reason or want an axe to grind accusation for your cause, your pet party, when it's really not humility or the Lord or love, you can get all the glory, accolades, promises that you can stand, it says, but lie not against the truth. The author and finisher of our faith is the truth, Jesus Christ, who dwells within. The Father God who looks at you and sees you when you're on and off this stage. Who knows if you're really impure or pure. Verse 15, but the wisdom that descends not from above. That's what we're focused on more today. The wisdom that descends not from above. How do you tell it? It's earthly. Sensual. That means dealing with the realm of the senses. It has to, it's akin to lust of the eyes, the body, the mind, whatever. And see, people are very, very uh, legalistic. They could think, you know, oh man, you know, they're scared of sinning and sex sin, all that stuff. See, that's the Puritan side. That's the accuser side of (laughs) teaching like this. This is the evil side. There's nothing wrong with having passion if it's, 
you know, with in marriage or with the right person, with God, you know, with its, it lines up with if it's not fornication. But it is earthly. You're talking about sensual. Oh, I got to have all the food I ever wanted. I got to have all the internet I ever wanted. I got to spend my time on porn. I got to spend my money because I love to spend and I have, I value clothes more than I value, you know, all this stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that could be sensual, not just fleshly, you know, relationships. The wisdom that descends not from above. It's earthly, sensual, devilish, prone to look like the devil, act like the devil, make you feel like the devil. It can be like an adversary, a liar, a thief, a deceiver, an accuser. Those are typical, the, what we look at the enemy, the devil, as describing. He's a liar, he's an accuser, he's the adversary, he's our enemy, he's an opponent, he's an accuser, creates warfare. For where there are envyings and strife, there is confusion in every evil work. All right? These are relationship. Every one of these sensual, devilish, envying, rivalry are all relationship issues. Theologically, relationship issues. We can work on that. First, envy, rivalry, and strife. Deception and confusion was experienced in Genesis 4 by... Cain, who is envious and rebellious, and he was envious and rivalrous because God liked his brother Abel's offering more, and it built up and built up, and he ended up killing him. So the rivalry, you read about it all the time, tennis shoes, somebody killed somebody for tennis shoes, or they knifed him for this or that, or they didn't get what they wanted, so they killed some. you know, I mean, it's just horrible things. Bullying. All right, bullying. I believe it's like a Saul and David. My personal observation, it could be Saul and David, usually really sweet kids that are well-raised and really loved, but they're too gentle. They don't know how to handle it. They're too meek or they feel inferior. Those people are t prone more, it looks like. A little kid has to have a tough side these days. <laughs> Not a mean side, but they have to be a little more power and might, forceful, have a force field. A little drill sergeant, maybe a lot, girl or boy. Not to be mean, but to be a fierce, fierceness. God-controlled fierceness that they will only, you know, James 3.17, but fierce. Because it is a spiritual battle, and the kids that are doing it usually are hurt. Or they've been treated cruelly, or their relationships in their life have been gone awry, cost dysfunction, or absent. It is relationship theology personified the wisdom that is from above oh yes this is why we want to teach on it go over it you know let people understand it milk it for all it's worth include all the other relationships bible how we won the church revelation 12 7 through 11 we overcame by the accuser by the blood of the lamb the word of our testimony and so forth but back we got to finish this one so here we have james at Jerusalem, he knew he probably had paid the price for being the pastor in that environment with all the different kind of beliefs and all the rumors. If you go to Jerusalem, which I really like, 
it is a hotbed and people there are rumors that go around old jerusalem i know that there's always the rumor this is that that you know it's just like part of the tradition over there so i can only imagine this is years eons ago it was still going on because of spiritual turf so he had to deal with these petty things that were there in people and he had to deal with the mighty things and the warfare and the rumors and like we do today so there he puts this amazing healthy verse for the criteria of healthy relationships all relationships and real respect for all kinds of people for the church for fellowship for family for ministry for couples for you and me he says but the wisdom and see he's talking about wisdom from chapter one on it's supernatural grace granted not superior but by god's mercy but the wisdom that is from above is, first of all, pure. It has no false motives, ulterior motives, not wanting to win, not wanting to get money off you, not wanting to take your stuff, All right, not wanting to control you. The wisdom that is from above is, first of all, pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. That means it won't wrestle you if you're wrong. It won't write a blog about you and blame you or say something negative from their pulpit. Name your name. It would go over there instead and maybe confront you in Matthew 15, 16 through 18 or Galatians 1 if he thinks you're in sin, but they wouldn't berate you in public without having a relationship first. That's my policy. It's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality. It means respect for everybody across the board equally. No big eyes, no little U's, no peons. And it is without hypocrisy. That means that under pressure, even the littlest member will have to rise up and react in the right fashion. And they'll have to self-manage, self-government with God's help. And that might be the only way that we can even do it. That's why God gives us the Savior from ourselves to protect us, to be there with us, to give us comfort, but also give us strength, <laughs> wisdom and direction and protection. But let's say, Father God, I feel like I'm just really, if I was going to think this, if I feel so angry, I just feel like I better be careful today that somebody says something wrong, I am going to snap back at them, which is true. That can happen. So no shame in admitting it. No flaw in saying, Lord, I feel tempted. It's doing it. That's the bad part. I feel like you could say some one of you, I feel like cussing them out. I feel like I could punch them. I feel this way. I feel that way. You know what? Healthy says to admit it to yourself. I can deal with it. I can't deal with it, Lord. You go to God. Instead of feeling ashamed or fear, embarrassed that you feel that way, go to God. Years ago, I had a relationship which I dearly loved and cared for, and this person had been raised so tough that when it would get so bad and stressful at their office, at their work, or in their life, instead of turning to God and saying, Father, I need to cast my cares upon you, I need your help to unwind and not get upset easily because I'm so tense. This person had a mantra, which is a big deal out there, I know. The mantra said, I'd say to the person, you know, you just need to take off and unwind. Well, the going, this is what would answer. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's like pull your own bootstraps mentality, which is huge in America. 
huge in America. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I'm going to pull myself up. I'm going to slave it out no matter what. (laughs) And that is opposite of James 3.17. That is the opposite. So in our new mantra, in our ministry mantra, we've posted, when the tough get going, the real tough run to God. They run to the Savior because they need one so they don't snap at their family or break. Because people are breakable. You could go with that pull yourself up with the bootstraps mental mindset all your life and end up with (laughs) a lot of doctor's bills. So you don't want to do that. Tell your children, teach your males especially, teach the real men of God, the real women of God, the real workers and capable people not to be like that. When the going gets tough, it will. It really can get extra tough. But at that point, the devil wants you to break or break your family or break your relationships or break your heart, literally or physically. So instead, you're smart. You have the wisdom that comes from above. You know about James 3.17 and you are going to say, no, I'm going to, I know that's a point where I better watch out and I'm going to go to God. And if I have to, I'll humble myself. You know, when it talks in Peter, and it talks about humbling yourself before the Lord. It says, and casting all your cares upon him. Did you realize that part of humbling ourselves is getting rid of our load of care, worry, burdens and doubts? And give them to the Lord. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Cast your burdens on the Lord. And he will sustain you. I have to do that all the time. But you know what? I've never been so... (laughs) I've never been so happy. I've never been so... I've had more than I've ever thought I would ever deal with. Worse things. A lot of the opposite of what I thought I'd ever go through. But you know what? I will say this. I have learned about the Lord more and grown and been successful in my, in, in my own joy and not being afraid and no burdens and feeling happy and like a lark singing and writing and doing. And I just feel it's a God gift. And when I don't feel that way, I think, what's wrong? And it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know how sneaky those cares can be. So you just take time, get apart, carve out time, humble yourself. That means I'm not going to be in control. I'm going to go to God and take time off to debrief, find out what's really wrong, what's working, what's not. If it's my fault, I'll change it. If it's too many cares or worries, I'm not going to keep them and that type of thing. And also self-discipline. So the idea is that God is so good, he's given us great abundance of provision for new thinking, great abundance for new ideas, new vision, for not being the same hangdog, old, poor, cloudy me every single day. This is going to be the new day. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Before I got to this point, years ago when I first started getting called to teach, I started first going through these awful, huge problems, many, many huge problems, and I would go to God, and uh, one of the first things I heard was a pastor on TV, on excuse me, on the Christian radio, which is like this two-watt, you know, small wattage vibe, you could barely hear it where I used to live in Virginia, and the person said, Count it all joy and study God's word. And I did. And you know who that was? That was a 915 on a Tuesday, I believe. And I was uh, going through the death of my father, death of my grandmother, postpartum depression, no car. Uh, stayed at home with a child who never slept for two and a half years. 
and all these things that would wear me out. And it was Brother Kenneth Copeland. And I followed that advice to this day. I chose to be of good cheer and I choose to study the Word and stay there. And I love it and the joy of the Lord. So I studied. I looked up. After that, I looked up, counted all joy. I looked up all these things, Paul in prison. And I thought, you know, if Paul was in prison and he willfully chose to be joyful, he saw something. He saw it from the heavenly viewpoint, not his own personal, oh, woe is me. I'm the victim. I'm a bit Because, you know, inside, when you close your eyes, when you close your eyes, that's where it either make you saved or not saved. That's where you're going to make your decisions, your conscience to be clean or not. That's where you're going to find fault or not. That's where you're going to be ready to go up be with the Lord if He comes soon or not. That's where you're going to make your excuses or not. That's the soul realm. When you close your eyes and we lay down and die in our earthly bodies, that part of you will live forever and it will be up with heaven and eternal glory and joy forevermore. Excitement, beauty, 100% organic, or it will go the opposite where you'll never have a day off in complete, utter darkness with burning and sulfur and screams and misery and no video games, no no friends and family network and no social life. Like I said, no time off, not even for good behavior, not even weekends. No food. I mean, it'll just be screaming and as the Bible teaches gnashing of teeth. That's why we don't want you to go there. That's why the Christian is saying, please invite Jesus into your heart. We don't want you to go there. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 7, 16, For God so loved the world that He made His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know, I want you to have everlasting life, not and be in the light, not in the dark. When I was in Virginia, my family and I years ago went down to, to one of the caves. They'd hid, hidden one of the soldiers of the Civil War, I think Stonewall Jackson and his men hid at the bottom of this cave. I don't know if it was Weir's Cave, one of those caves in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. So we went there, and they took us down there, and they used a candle. Once we got there, they turned the candlelight out, and it was the worst darkness. And we were way down below, and it was the most horrible thought. Thick darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your child or anything. And I thought, hell is like this. Never. One light, but only pain and suffering. I don't want to go there. I don't want anybody I care about in this day. I respect everybody enough to let them know, please make the right choice. Don't go there. Invite Jesus into your heart. So I'm leaving that word with you as a Selah to think about, even if you're a Christian minister, to think about the same thing. I used to have a board. I've got to go, but I used to have a board member who had been a little boy preacher. He's African-American. He's now with the Lord. But he had been a little boy preacher because he was so talented. He had been a um, Black Panther imam. He'd sold. He worked on Jimmy Carter's campaign, I think, and made a certain thing they used for their motto and, uh, and you know, their representation of the campaign. He had co-ops in Atlanta. And then one day, his little girl scratched him, five-month-old girl scratched his cornea and he'd had four real degrees, four doctorates, and he lost everything, was a vegetable. He'd also been a preacher, a Baptist preacher, that preached but wasn't saved. He wasn't saved. He'd sin at night on Sunday night, but he'd preach all this stuff about heaven in the daytime. 
Well, when he got this illness, for five months he was a vegetable. His wife left him. Nobody came to see him. And one day the Lord, in his mercy, his might and power, brought back a memory of the paralytic saying, being rise and be healed. And Brother Jones, Dr. John E. Jones of Keisha Ministries, suddenly met the Lord. He accepted the Lord and he got healed on the spot. And he walked out. He stood up. He fell off the bed first and then he inched his way to the wall and then he stood up with the power of God. He went in the hallway and all the doctors and everybody screamed because they had seen him in bed like a vegetable for five months. And then he still didn't have his memory back. He couldn't even add figures. But after that, even that returned and he was a wonderful board member, friend and advisor, friend advisor. And when we would go do things... Uh, he said one day, he said, because we'd gone to Washington for some movement, you know, type of Christian thing. <laughs> he was one of my board members. And he said, as I left, and I felt so honored, he said, I said, goodbye, Dr. Jones. And he said, got your back, Black. And I went, wow, what a compliment. Because it was like that. You didn't see color. You're genuine with him and me. It was just like a... A good friendship, just a good friendship. But anyway, he left. He had a kidney trouble later and had dialysis, and then he went home to be with the Lord. But anyway, God is good. His mercy endures. And I would say this, respect yourself. Respect yourself as well as everybody else and abide in James 3.17. This is Dr. T. Tavo DRC signing off for now. Have a great one and fellowship with the saints somewhere. And even if you can't get there, fellowship with the Lord right now. Every day he wants you to. Bye-bye. God bless.